Secrets and Spies presents Espresso Martini with Chris Carr and Matt Fulton. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Espresso Martini. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Back in the frozen north from spending a weekend in Florida for a friend's wedding. It was it was fun. Excellent. Thanks. You had some nice weather out there. It was okay. It was it was it was it was good. It wasn't hot, but it was um not really mm. like shorts weather, but it was nice. It was up in like high sixties, about seventy. I'm not sure what that is Celsius for Lovely. you guys, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I know I've seen a few um, Instagram posts of people of having warm Februarys in like New York and stuff. Yeah, we're having a relatively mild one here, but it's wet. Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly wet today. So. I'm back in New Jersey now, and the last two days were up in like the 60s, which is very warm for the yeah. end of February here. But I think it's back. Okay. I haven't been outside yet, but it's back more seasonal now. Yeah, anyway, that's our yeah. weather report to start the show. <laughs> that's our weather for the day, yes. Indeed, indeed. Well, on today's episode, we're going to talk about things slightly more exciting than the weather. Um, we're going to be looking at some leaked Russian documents about their threshold for using nuclear weapons. We've got an assassination of a Russian defector in Spain. We've got details on the cooperation between the CIA and Ukrainian intelligence services and more. Then we'll move on to our Patreon-only show, Extra Shot. On that, we will look at recommendations for a shake-up of British intelligence, the arrest of an alleged member of the Red Army faction in Germany, and we'll also look at the conviction of a left-wing terrorist in the UK and a cyber attack against the Iranian spy ships. There's quite a lot there going on in Extra Shot. To listen to Extra Shot, you'll need to be a Patreon subscriber. Just go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies and pick the subscription level that works best for you. And also you'll get a coaster or a free coffee cup. So uh, first off, let's have a look at the Russian documents leaks. I'll, I'll uh, just go through this and I'll come to you for your thoughts, Matt. So um, this is based on reporting by the Financial Times and I'm using an article titled Leaked. Russian military files reveal criteria for nuclear strike. So key points are, uh, so the leaked military files reveal rehearsal scenarios involving tactical nuclear weapons against a major world power such as China, suggesting a lower threshold for nuclear use than publicly acknowledged. These documents spanning from 2008 to 2014 outline the criteria for nuclear responses, including scenarios like enemy incursions, on Russian territory or destruction of strategic assets. Russian tactical nuclear weapons designed for limited use in Europe and Asia remain a cornerstone of Russia's defence policy. Despite the document being dated, experts believe these documents still reflect current military doctrine, indicating the ongoing relevance of nuclear strategies in Russian defence planning. The training materials reveal deep-seated suspicions of China among Moscow's security elite, despite the growing partnership between the two countries. Russia's military conducts exercises envisioning potential Chinese invasions, highlighting strategic tensions in the region. Russian doctrine is sometimes referred to as escalating to de-escalate, and it involves tactical weapons to prevent further conflict escalation. The aim is to shock adversaries into accepting terms or to, or to secure settlements. This strategy has implications for global security dynamics, particularly concerning conflicts involving Russia, China and the US. 
So, Matt, did you have any any thoughts on these leaked documents? Yeah, um, a few. It's it's first. It's so rare that you see these kind of leaks from within the Russian military or the security services. Um, I mean, it seems like I don't know, like every other week here, there's some minor enlisted IT guy who comes back from lunch with a headache or whatever and thinks I'm gonna you know drop all the crown jewels of the U.S. intelligence community. Um, but it's very rare that you see anything kind of like behind the curtain as far as the Russians are concerned, like official documents. So it's just interesting, you know, just to see this kind of um, a leak. I think it's seeing for them the bar to employ tactical nukes on a battlefield is 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 quite low. Um, that to me, I think we've talked about this on here before dangers posed by let's say an operation to like retake crimea or some mm. other like regime threatening action i mean yeah, i don't think it's yeah. it's not it's not, unfortunately not really in the cards right now at this current moment but i've said before that i think once the ukrainians if or you know once the ukrainians are are able to credibly threaten crimea to retake crimea um that to me is when I would be most concerned about some sort of major escalatory action. I feel like that's when, you know, the Russians and, you know, Putin himself would see that this is too, um, the risks of failure here are are higher than they're willing to accept. Um, and this doctrine, I think, really just kind of proves that. Um, by comparison, I don't know... I don't know if there's a situation where the U.S. would deploy strategic nukes without being nuked first. You know, I, I, I can't, I couldn't foresee a scenario in which, in which we would do that. The other thing that's really interesting, probably I think the most interesting part of the article, is that uh, how concerned the Russians are to the extent that they would like war game this and put it in their doctrines how concerned the Russians are about a possible threat from China. Um, that, like, when I first read it, I, it was sort of, it just seemed odd to me. Like, okay, is that just, like, a placeholder, you know? Because countries do that in, like, war games all the time. Like, our U.S. war games are a lot of, like, made-up fictional countries that are, like, thinly-veiled versions of adversaries that we would face, you know? Mm -hmm. um, Almost like Top Gun 2. <laughs> basically, yeah, just generic bad guys. You know, yeah. please don't be mad at us for who we're depicting as, you know, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. What's they call them again? No, I can't remember. Was it the enemy? Or I can't remember. Yeah. Just the enemy. That was sort of like the first one too, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Chinese yeah. box office is important. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, like that was, that was a sort of, that just felt odd to me, but then I kind of sat with it a while and I was like, no, actually that makes a lot of sense that they would be mm. concerned mm. about about uh, the Chinese. I mean, I'm looking over on the shelf right there, the copy of uh, Clancy's uh, The Bear and the Dragon, you know, maybe, um, which is, you know, about a uh, conventional war between Russia and China. Maybe the old man had a point there. But I don't think a scenario where that would happen is on the cards right now. I'm trying to project a bit into the future. Like, okay, let's say one of the thoughts that that people had 
following the war in Ukraine and like the 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 sanctions that the Russians got hammered with, right? That their economy was so dependent on the Chinese that Russia would essentially become not so much a partner, even a junior partner, but a vassal state to the Chinese to mm. the extent that like mm. the North Koreans are with the Chinese right now, right? Like entirely just dependent on them like under their thumb, you know? Which is a bad scenario for everyone, the Russians included and us, right? But like you, you look into that sort of a scenario in in the future, and like let's say the Russians continue to pose no real conventional threat, right? And in many ways, for for a major global power like the U.S. or China, Russia, it's it's a considerable conventional threat, but it's not it's not a major concern. Like something that like the Biden administration said sort of early on, like if the Russians use a tactical nuclear weapon or chemical weapons or something in Ukraine, basically said, you know, we'll destroy the Black Sea fleet and the Russian invasion mm. force in Ukraine. Mm. And it wasn't a mm. statement of like a goal, like we're going to try to do this. It was, no, we will destroy the Black Sea fleet and your entire invasion force and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. So in many ways, Russia's nuclear arsenal is the one thing that keeps them it's the one thing that keeps them a a major player on the world stage you know like an indispensable yeah. kind of a power without that yeah. the, the threat just isn't really credible okay so let me go back to the scenario here that russia has been such a a vassal state under the chinese at some point in the near future that let's say the Chinese economy is, you know, tanking for demographic reasons or, you know, what have you. And they're looking across into the Russian Far East, into Siberia and Central Asia and seeing all these oil and gas fields and these rare earth, these rare earth minerals, stuff that the Chinese economy desperately needs to grow. And Beijing says, why are we paying the Russians for this? Why don't we just go take it? You know? Mm -hmm. That's a kind mm. of a, it's again, it's, it's not a scenario that is going to happen today or tomorrow or next week. Or, I mean, there's a lot that would have to happen to make this viable, but it's an, it's, it's a scenario that's not the jump to get there is not e extreme, you know, like if you were to, I don't know, like look into the future and tell me that that happens in the next 30 to 50 years or maybe even sooner, mm. I wouldn't think that that's mm. an insane thing to suggest. And apparently based on these leaked doctrines that the Russians feel the same way. Yeah, yeah. I think I get the impression Russia is just inherently paranoid of anybody they're allied with because if you look at the um, mid-90s onwards, the West was sort of seeing Russia as a potential new partner and it seems to be from certainly when Putin took over that no, no, the West is the enemy, and they'd be waging a war against the West. As the saying goes, Russia's waging a war against the West, but the West hasn't realized that yet. So it doesn't really surprise me that they feel that way about the Chinese as well. I suppose you could argue as well, you know, a responsible military probably does have to draw up defensive plans for all sorts of scenarios, whether it be friends or obvious enemies and things. So there is certainly a, a case for Russia needing to draw up yeah. plans. We had plans to... Uh invade canada in a hypothetical <laughs> third war yeah. with the uk up until world war ii yeah yeah and they could be dusted off at some point <laughs> if you want to go Watch let's go Canadians. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, one thing I was interested by this whole whole document. I have a suspicion that it might have been leaked on purpose, if you know what I mean. Okay. It's near the Russian elections, and it kind of is talking about the nuclear threshold that we allegedly didn't know. And there's an interesting statement from Putin's spokesperson saying, the main thing is that the threshold for the use of nuclear weapons is absolutely transparent and spelled out in the doctrine. And then he says, as for the documents mentioned, we strongly doubt their authenticity, which is a bit weird. Yeah. And I'm wondering if this is some sort of thinly veiled sort of warning about Crimea, like you were saying earlier. It, these sort of leaks are sort of leaks that happen in America. This is sort of like the, you know, the, the IT person you described, you know, who's libertarian, probably drank way too many energy drinks and seems to think Julian Assange is a hero. And, um, and they're the sort of people who leak stuff and it usually comes from america and there's been the only um people who've made any significant progress in getting information out of russia has been bellingcat but it's not really ever been military files has it it's open source stuff that they're able to mine i mean bellingcat definitely has sources that that leak them stuff like phone records and everything that aren't quite easy to just to just buy and then they use that to mine the information and and plug that yeah, into other yeah, but yeah 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 and then michael weiss has like sources within russia but again um don't think you get many real documents do you i don't know i may be wrong on that he certainly there was something about the gru he had that he's writing a book about but yeah but um but this is kind of rare and so makes me wonder whether it is a thinly veiled threat from russia just to say hey because there's been a lot of debate as we've seen online and comments online where people have really played down the threat of a nuclear escalation with russia and ukraine to the point where people were like almost saying on twitter oh nothing to worry about you know but i've always been concerned about russia kind of uh being pushed into a corner where they feel they want to use their nuclear weapons well you've seen a lot of the extremes of that argument on both sides Mm. online and Mm. i mean yeah you've seen and it's sort of it's kind of used to make disingenuous points i think like to your point like people saying like and don't worry about the russians like we can do whatever we want and you know they won't nuke us i think the threat of some sort of a nuclear exchange with the russians is very low but it's not it's Mm. it's not it's not impossible it's yeah it's it's not impossible it's something that is certainly like like we've said before in in efforts to you know give more offensive weaponry to Ukraine that would enable them to strike mm. inside Russia at longer distances and something. I mean, I'm generally supportive of those efforts, but I think it is worthwhile to pause and really think about what you're doing because you are taking a stick and poking it in the eye of a country with thousands of nuclear warheads, right? Yes. Um, to the other extreme of that, you have a lot of people on the far right and the far left saying, well, Russia has nuclear weapons, therefore you have to let them do whatever they want because to push back on them mm. means the end of the human race. Mm. And that's just yeah. that's just yeah. like, okay, so we're hostages now. You know? So yeah. any country that has nuclear weapons, well, they can yeah. just do whatever we want. Could we do whatever we want because we have nukes too? Could the UK? Yeah, I know. We, I don't know. It's weird. I, I, it's so funny looking at debates around everything. And at the moment, if you believe the internet, you would believe that the West are just pure warmongers. And they're the ones who are like gonna do whatever they want. But when in reality, looking at it all, it's definitely not the West who are acting that irresponsibly. Um, if anything, it feels like the West has way more measures in place to stop a nuclear atrocity from happening. We have been so restrained in terms of like our our stance towards Russia and Iran, especially in the last couple of years. 
I mean, to like the thread of like that the Biden administration has, okay, if the Russians use tactical nukes or chemical weapons in Ukraine, yeah, like the Black Sea Fleet, your invasion force is just gone. And to the same point, you know, with the Iranians, what what we could do to them, you know, within a couple days. I mean, yeah, there is second and third order follow on consequences and stuff, and it opens Mm -hmm. up a whole mess. It's Mm -hmm. not a tidy. You don't just start it and then just turn it off and go back to, you know, the way it was before. But what we could do compared to what we have done, as far as those two countries are concerned, are so cautious to the point that we're sort of tying our 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 hands behind our backs mm. you know mm. yeah indeed and and sort of becoming a a paper tiger a little bit has always been my sure. concern yeah um because if if your only response is to nuke something and you don't nuke something then after a while your your you your threat becomes hollow um not what I'm saying. America should go and nuke something. But, well, that's you know um, I mean? yeah. I mean, that's the Russians. I mean, it's sort of like it's not news anymore when the Russians threaten mm. to, you know, nuke. Yeah. Like there was that one. I forget who it was. If it was Dmitry Medvedev or someone who was like uh, pointing out this like Bond villain type weapon that he said would would you know cover the UK in a huge tsunami, which is just ridiculous too. But I mean, you say it so often, then it's just like. Okay, Dimitri mm. got into the Stolchi again, you know, okay. Yeah. I don't exactly. think they drink Stolchi over there. I think that's not. But anyway, no. you know what I mean. Anyway, but yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, one th- uh, You can tell these documents are dated because the one thing they didn't have was how um, a mutinous Wagner convoy could get to Moscow with little or no resistance. So- yes. <laughs> so uh, they might need to update that document now. <laughs> There we go. Well, look, shall we um, shall we move on from that one? Yeah. And uh, you've got a great piece about the, the Russian pilot who defected to Ukraine last year and then was recently found shot to death in Spain. So, yeah, talk us through that. Next one I have here, uh, it's by the New York Times. The article is called uh, Russian pilot who defected to Ukraine is believed dead in Spain. This article is a little bit old. He's not believed dead. He is dead. But yeah. So Maxim Kuzminov, a Russian pilot, defected to Ukraine last summer as many may remember, exchanging his MI-8 military helicopter for $500,000. His defection, naturally, was considered treason in Russia, and Ukrainian intelligence warned him of the danger to his life if he left the country. Kuzminov ignored the warnings and moved to Spain's Costa del Sol, where he was found dead in Hoyosa on February 13th, allegedly shot multiple times. Mm. Ukrainian authorities confirmed Kuzminov's death but provided no further details on the circumstances. The death is suspected to be the work of Russia's intelligence services, exacerbating tensions between Russia and Europe. Kuzminov's defection was part of a six-month operation by Ukrainian intelligence codenamed Titmouse. He defected due to opposition to Russia's war in Ukraine and provided valuable intelligence to Ukraine, I think especially the... um, Mm. The electronics on the helicopter were probably worse. Yeah, I think that's what made it special because the helicopter itself is a very old platform. Yeah, the MI8 yeah. airframe. That's not a, a yeah. Inter- yeah, it's it's the the avionics, the electronics, mm. the communication equipment that mm. was really special. Kuzminov's family was extracted to Ukraine before his defection, and he was promised a five hundred thousand dollar reward for his services. Spain has become a haven for disenchanted Russians, mm. with many settling in coastal towns like the one where Kuzminov was found dead. Chris, what do you think about mm. this? Well, God, multiple thoughts here. I think Spain was a very poor choice of places to hide. Um, 
you know, as you said, the Costa del Sol in the UK, we call it the Costa del Crime because it's just the place where ex-English gangsters go and hide, as do Russian gangsters as well. And also you've got Malaga that's like a three-hour drive from where he lived, and Malaga is very much a haunt for both rich Russians and members of Russian organised crime. Now, I'm, I'm, am I right in thinking that the the assassination itself hasn't been proven to be the Russians, but we know it is the Russians. And I would, you know, I'd put good money on it. It's either the Russian government or they've used organised crime as a cutout to perform the murder. And obviously he was riddled with bullets. It wasn't just one or two shots or a clean shot. He was literally, you know, the, the reporting is he was riddled with bullets. So it was definitely... Yeah, they made a statement. Yeah, yeah. I think you'd call it a statement kill, I think, is the term. Yeah, he, he definitely wasn't a liked man. Um, and, I, and I think I said to you that I've noticed Putin seems like ordering assassinations near elections. Because um, when I was mm. reflecting on the Scripple poisoning, that happened in early March, which was just before the elections of 2018. And we've got now the death of Navalny and uh, Kuzminov's death, all just before the Russian elections that are coming up in a few weeks' time. Obviously, we know, I think we already know the results of the Russian elections, but, um, you know, uh, and we say elections in quotation marks. Yes. Uh, so, but I think Putin just likes to project this image of that Russia has a long reach and he has a known distaste for traitors. And I think he's, you know, constantly sending out this message that if you decide to defect, we will find you. Because I know the CIA have ramped up their efforts online to um, try and recruit disenfranchised Russians. From what I've seen of Michael Weiss's reporting, I think the US are doing quite well, the West are doing quite well with pissed off Russians at the moment. Um, and, and maybe the leak we spoke about just now could be a result of one of those pissed off Russians, even though my suspicions are, I think it's more of a political leak. Um, but, uh, but there we go. Um, yeah. What thoughts did you have on all this? Uh, well, we were texting about it a bit at the time mm -hmm. that the news broke and, you know, we, I was thinking back to the episode we did right after the defection, you know, like the Ukrainians yeah. had a, um, a whole show of a press conference with him up on stage mm, mm, identity mm. like there's his face there's, here's his name here's him speaking about it in depth and i think we said at the time that like this just feels like does he fully understand the extent to which he's signed his own death warrant by doing this you know yeah i don't think he had it yeah, just yeah. felt ethically wrong with what Ukrainian intelligence was doing and how open they were in 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 brandishing him specifically, you know. Yeah. And there 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 was a lot about the operation that just felt gross to me, you know, like um his crew. Oh yeah, that that's always bothered me. Mm. Yeah, who mm. were given the op who were given the option to to defect as well, and you know they resisted and and they were executed. Mm. I think on the spot. Mm. Um, which you know well, it's yeah. It's war. Well, I don't know if they were executed. I think a, a gun battle took okay. place from what I read. I don't think they were executed. I, and also, they weren't really given a choice. The pilot made the choice for right. them. Right, they didn't, didn't know. tell them. And ended up in enemy territory. His their family yeah. was already out. Theirs weren't. Yeah. You know? So they're yeah. not operating on the same mm. kind of mm. decision that he was. I don't know. It's 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 war. Russia has been terrible and the things that it's done to Ukrainians over the course of this war 
terrible things happen in war. It's messy. I get all of that. But there's something about it that just felt with that crew specifically, you know, that mm. just felt, I don't know, not great to me. I mean, okay, arrest them, detain them, interrogate them, and then, you know, dump them at the Belarusian border or something you know well, i think it's because they they op- they did start shooting yeah because they they assumed yeah so basically right. i think what the, the because because the pilot didn't bother to even speak to them and he literally lands this thing in ukraine his colleagues think that they're landing in enemy territory and and then suddenly ukrainian special forces turn up because it's all pre-range yeah. and they panic and they start shooting and then obviously the ukrainians shoot back um and they died and i blame the pilot for that because well you know, he should have, I don't know, I mean, again, this is, uh, it's not easy. How do you get rid of your crew? Yeah, yeah for October, they faked a, um, a radiation leak, didn't they? So this is where real world versus entertainment doesn't quite align. Because how do you get rid of the crew? If he'd stolen the helicopter, I, I can't remember where it was based, so I doubt he would have got to the border. Um, so they probably, I don't know, maybe he should have found a way to get hold of the crew's guns before they took off to make sure they were not armed or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah. It is it it was messy. Um and and it led to the death of was it his three colleagues and yeah. he got away with it and then seems to be living it large. It could have even been do you know what? It could even be a family member of one of the crew who have fucked off with him and found him. I don't know. Maybe there is that. I mean yeah and then and then to go to the Casa del Sol to I don't know, mm. live it up and, and drink and like there yeah, is no more fellow Russians. Yeah. There's no more wretched hive of scum and villainy if you are a defected Russian. Like yeah. you might as well just go yeah. back to Moscow and say, Here I am, guys. Yeah, I did yeah, it's weird. I wondered why he picked Spain. I can only assume that either he had a relative or a lover there. Or it was an area that was just familiar to him. Or he was just naive to think, oh, they're fellow Russians there. It'll be fine. I don't know. It's, it... There's a couple other points here. Uh, so Spanish <laughs> intelligence was apparently unaware that he was even in the country. Wow. Well, there we go. So, yeah. you know, they can't put surveillance on him to make sure that he's not being tailed by a hostile intelligence service or at least give him a defensive briefing. You know, if like, yeah. hey, we've detected that, you know, there are these GRU officers that entered the country. You should either get out or stay in this safe house until we handle it. You know, mm. stuff like that. Mm. Another interesting thing. So Oleg Savayev, who uh, is apparently Kuzminov's father, um, this is according to a Russian telegram channel. He said, uh, of course, I about his son's uh, death. Um, of course, I expected it to happen to him. A traitor is a traitor. I felt he behaved like a Judas. And at the same yeah. time, I feel sorry mm-hmm. for him that he traded himself for spare change, betrayed his fatherland, his close ones, and added that he felt sorry for wow. the crew. And that was his dad. His was dad. It? Wow. 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 I mean, yeah. to be fair, yeah. if mm. his dad voiced, publicly voiced any other sentiments, he'd be charged with discrediting the military or treason yeah. or something himself. Yeah. yeah indeed. I can understand now what I would say just um, in, uh, for anybody who thinks that maybe we're anti Kuzminov's choices. I mean, I can understand why he defected because Russia is engaged in this absolutely dreadful war. And I can understand why other people are wanting to defect, but the risks are real. And, you know, I'm just surprised he didn't just, well, because the Ukrainians gave him an option to stay in Ukraine, they could protect him. Um, and if he went out of Ukraine, they can't protect him. And he obviously made that choice. 
Um, and I, I was also interested as well, like considering that the Ukrainians and the Americans they have quite a good relationship on the intelligence front, that why was there no offer maybe from the US to offer Kuzminov or other defectors safe passage somewhere in the US? Yeah. It's an interesting one that. I mean, maybe maybe he just wasn't important enough. Maybe more important defectors do get that choice. Or maybe from the US point of view, it might be too provocative to hold on to Russian defectors. Maybe. I don't know. But I mean... But with the WITSEC program and stuff, America's very good at making people disappear if they want to. Yeah, we have um, CIA has a it's called the National Resettlement Operations Center that um, yeah does that. Yeah, because what's interesting with this, obviously, Kuzminov was used as as presented as a coup for the Ukrainians, wasn't it? As we were saying mm-hmm. with that press conference, but now this is like the counter to that, so it could put off would be defectors, and I feel like the whole sure. thing has been handled a bit badly, really. Yeah, to put it bluntly. No, I, I think I think you you make a good point there to to I guess highlight that we're not criticizing his decision to defect; it's just how it went down. Yeah. Is there's parts of that that are uncomfortable, and that press conference making him like the star of that press conference, I felt at the yeah. time was a very bad idea, and yeah, his decision to just go to Spain and just live it up, like like he wasn't, you know, one of the top targets for Russian intelligence is just it it's it's I mean you don't want to speak ill of the dead, but this was dumb. No, yeah, it was, it was, yeah. Um, so yeah, I can, it's, it's, it was messy and it's got even worse now. So, uh, yeah, he didn't even last a year after the defection, did he? Um, so it doesn't, I just think from a, you know, wanting to encourage other people to do it point of view, I just think that was handled very badly. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe he was a bit of a pain in the ass. you know, the Ukrainians to death, you know, to be fair to them did offer him protection yeah and he chose to go in this direction so it's you can lead a horse to water mm, right yeah so i don't know maybe maybe there was something about this guy i don't know but uh yeah who knows maybe we'll find out more and as time goes on but um you know i i feel obviously sorry for his family and stuff and friends but uh yeah yeah unfortunate end and probably avoidable well let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back You picked a great piece here to, that explains the similarity between U.S. and China's current generation of stealth fighters. So, uh, yeah, tell us about this. Yes, yeah, so this is an article. It's by Alex Hollings for Sandbox News. He does a lot of really good uh, stuff. He has a, a, a YouTube channel as well that posts a lot of interesting. There's a video on his YouTube channel that's explaining the same thing as covered um, in the article. But this one's called The Man Who Stole America's Stealth Fighter Secrets for China. So. China's advanced stealth fighters like the J-20 and FC-31 are believed to have incorporated stolen design elements from American and Russian fighter programs. Su Bin, a Chinese national, pleaded guilty in 2016 to charges related to a conspiracy to steal American military secrets, specifically the designs for advanced stealth fighters such as the F-22 and F-35. Sue worked with hackers employed by China's People's Liberation Army to gain unauthorized access to protected computer networks in the United States, including those belonging to Boeing. Despite operating a small company in the aviation industry, Sue established extensive business contacts in Canada and the U.S., allowing him to gain access to internal networks of defense contractors. 
Over six years, Sue and his team stole tens of thousands of files related to stealth fighter programs, including those of the F-22 and F-35. Sue covered his tracks by using intermediary networks in multiple third-party nations to disguise the origin of the of, of the infiltration. Those are of like these defense contractors' uh, computer systems. Yeah, yeah. His stolen information enabled China to develop its own stealth fighter, the J-20, which showed significant design similarities to American stealth fighters. Despite facing 30 years in prison, Sue accepted a plea agreement and cooperated with American authorities, receiving a 46-month sentence. The stolen files, along with correspondence between Sue and Chinese military officials, provided evidence of China's theft and use of Lockheed Martin design elements in its fighter programs. China's use of stolen design elements does not diminish the potential threat posed by its fighters, as effective employment strategies can offset technological shortcomings. Chris, what'd you think about this one? Well, uh, first of all, I found it fascinating. And again, thank you for sharing this. I mean, I've, you know, uh, over the years, a bit of an aviation nerd, and I've noticed that these fighters do look remarkably similar to American ones. Yes. Um, it's interesting when talking to people about military industrial espionage, because a lot of people don't realize that one of the points of industrial espionage is it can save money on research and development, and also provides an insight on the capabilities that your adversary has and can expose any weaknesses that they may need to overcome. And I remember, what was it, last year we covered a story about these ex-RAF pilots who were in China training Chinese pilots, and there were accusations that they might well have uh, shared insight in Western tactics, even though the pilots denied that. But at the same time, their presence in China is concerning, especially as the Chinese government is getting more open and bolder about its intentions to reclaim Taiwan. So, um, yeah, it just sort of, it kind of, fits in with that sort of um, that industrial espionage angle and wanting to know what the West capabilities are and being able to match them. We've seen China's been building up its military to match the US. And I was also interested like the spy side of it because Su Bin used his cover as an aviation entrepreneur to make connections in the aviation industry. And even though the American and military government was a small player, he was still, you know, having conversations with big companies like Lockheed and stuff. And also, it looked like he was stealing information to order. Um, so it wasn't like a straightforward grab the entire hard drive of Lockheed Martin and walk out the door. They kind of were shopping for info and at different companies and trying to um, work out what fit where. So what I, from what I understood was that there are different components of the fighter built by different people yeah. that you need to then go to those different places to get the information. And apparently... The information spread out on its own is not necessarily classified. It's when you kind of bring it all together, it becomes classified. So that was quite interesting. And yeah, so like one of the issues that they were trying to find a solution for was to do with the turbofan technology for the engines. And so um, Subin made contact with a company called GE who helped Pratt & Whitney develop the engine for the F-22. And that's and then he targeted GE to steal their data to overcome this technical problem. And I suppose the one last note as well, is and this is where the RAF pilots became relevant. Is you can steal tech and and all that and rebuild something, but you also kind of need the skills to operate it to go with it. So you know you might better assemble this wonderful new stealth fighter, but unless you've kind of got the the kind of tactics and experience to go with it, then it is just a kind of glorified paperweight yeah. isn't it so you know <laughs> but yeah matt any any thoughts for you on this yeah first you make an interesting point about i guess the experience or lack thereof of chinese pilots mm. you know and that's mm. i think is a i don't want to assume but it's perhaps an issue across the entire pla that 
in modern times, they've not faced any combat whatsoever. Like no one in their armed forces has seen combat, you know, in an actual war setting that counts for something, you know? Um, I mean, how much they train and 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 war game and and modernize their technology in in preparation for a great power conflict is one thing, but you know, when it comes to pilots specifically, combat pilots, that sort of uh, um, hands-on experience is something that you just can't teach. You know, um, I mean, I think we sort of learned that going back to. During the Vietnam War, we were the the U.S. were taking tons of losses against um, against Russian MiGs, Soviet-made MiGs that the that the North Vietnamese uh, were using, and we started training our guys against actual MiGs. You know, there's that whole constant mm. peg program mm. um, out in Nevada yeah. with quote unquote acquired MiGs um, yeah. that uh, you would go and 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 fly. You would train against mm. yeah actual mm. MiGs out on the range, and there was yeah. always that that shock factor of seeing a real one in person and the air force mm. wanted their fighter pilots to go through that shock not yeah, on an actual now, battlefield yeah. you know yeah. yeah interesting you mentioned vietnam because there is an interesting extra sort of subnote stroke footnote for that um cuz fred burton mentioned in in his book about the killing of the israeli pilot by black september Apparently, the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy, so the U.S. Air Force were having more losses than the U.S. Navy in Vietnam. But for whatever reason, the U.S. Air Force didn't want to consult the Navy pilots about their tactics, pride or whatever. And so the U.S. Air Force actually um, went out to the Israeli Air Force, and I guess it must have been their MiGs that they used yeah. to train the U.S. Air Force pilots, and then it led to um, a better success rate. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think also this article shows the sort of staggering counterintelligence threat faced by the FBI and, in this case, the Air Force's Office of Special Investigations um, that are posed by Chinese industrial espionage mm -hmm. efforts, you know. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, like you have, yeah. you know, you think of like the big three uh, aviation contractors, so Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, but below that are tons of other subcontractors and different outfits that are involved in terms of like uh engine production software all kinds of stuff that i don't even you know don't even know to think of you know um yeah. and that's hard to 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 rope it together and I, i'm curious if this effort to so the f-22 and the f-35 as are the j-20 are all fifth generation fighters right um, they're out in the world now, you know. Um, we're currently developing six-gen fighter programs, right? Mm. So that's, mm. for the U.S., that's, um, it's called, the program's called uh, the NGAD, or Next Generation Air Dominance. Um, and that's an Air Force program to replace the F-22. Uh, yeah. The Navy component of that, it's the uh, FAXX program, which is their effort to replace the F-18. Um, ah, okay. Yeah. And I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm curious to see, or I, I would be curious to know, like, to what extent have these Chinese espionage efforts against these fifth generation programs, how has that translated to the counterintelligence that are currently being done to protect these sixth gen programs, right? So a, a big component of the NGAD 
um, it's it's supposedly well, it's not it's 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 going to have this. Um, it's called Collaborative Combat Aircraft or CCA, uh, which are like going to be AI driven loyal wingmen drones that operate alongside a crewed um, NGAD fighter, right? Um, so like the Air Force wants to buy comparatively fewer NGADs as compared to the F-22s because they think that these um, AI-driven drones will be kind of like a force multiplier, right? Um, Boeing and Lockheed are still in competition for the contract. I think it's it's worth saying that there probably are Lockheed and Boeing NGAD prototypes sitting in a hangar at Area 51 right now, um, as are prototypes of these uh, loyal wingmen drones. You know, something that, um, so about a year or so ago, maybe a little bit more than that, but not not too much further back, there was a new building that was seen under construction. It's it's complete now. There was a new building that was constructed at Area 51. And judging by the um, large amount of air conditioning equipment that's attached to the building, people think it's a data center that's connected to the AI program's that are on on that are going to be incorporated into these sixth generation fighters. So I don't know. It's interesting to me. Like, are they? Uh, is the Air Force pulling more of these design and development and testing efforts, like in house into the NGADS uh, combined test force, rather than leaving it mm. in the hands of all these mm. subcontractors? Like, is it is it easier mm. to 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 defend it if you keep it closer to the vest? If that makes sense. Yeah, I guess I I guess there must be some sort of like when the government do should we say hire Lockheed Martin or somebody as a supplier there's got to be some sort of protocol about how they protect their data that they must pass to oh, sure. qualify. Yeah, to be a it's supplier. yeah, there's I mean it's um it's standard data protection uh, uh classified information protection procedures that are in place across you know yeah if you want the contract you have to be able to demonstrate that you're able to protect your information up to these standards you know all the Lockheed engineers at Skunk Works or whatever all have top secret clearances um they're you know read into these uh special access programs that you know each one of those prototypes are a, are a separate special access program that like you have to have a, a a need to know to be um involved in yeah no that was a, it's a fascinating case and i think really good article and people should check it out because it is a bit of contemporary espionage history and and you know definitely going to be other cases like this i'm sure in the future just to break the fourth wall here for a second if mm. listeners would be interested in in hearing a show all about sixth generation fighter programs the ngad that kind of stuff let us know shoot us an email is that secrets and spies podcast at gmail.com or let me know on Twitter as at Fulton Matt, F U L T O N M A T T. Let me know if you want to hear mm. that and we can, I think mm. that's something that could be arranged. Get that organized. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you again for that because that was a really interesting piece. And, um, you know, I've been always fascinated by that. So uh, we'll move on to a great piece, I thought, from the New York Times, which is all about the partnership between the CIA and Ukraine's intelligence services in the fight against Putin. So I'll just briefly go through that and then come back to you, Matt, for your thoughts. Um, so deep in a forest in Ukraine, there is a military base that, despite surface destruction, harbors a critical underground bunker. This bunker serves as a key intelligence nerve center, monitoring Russian spy satellites 
and intercepting communications. The CIA plays a pivotal role in financing and equipping the base, highlighting the deepening US-Ukraine intelligence partnership. For over a decade, the US and Ukraine intelligence collaboration has grown from initial distrust to become a significant defense asset for both sides. The initial distrust was over fluctuating loyalties on the Ukrainian side between Russia and the West, and after the collapse of the Russian-backed government of Viktor Yankovych, Ukraine's new spy chief got on the phone to the CIA and wanted their help to rebuild the SBU, which is the Ukrainian intelligence, civilian intelligence services, from the ground up. The CIA was cautious until Ukraine swiftly provided intelligence after the MH17 tragedy, which is when Russian-backed rebels shot down an airliner uh, full of passengers. And uh, this this uh, intelligence that they provided impressed the CIA and marked the beginning of that deepening partnership. And then that led to CIA-backed initiatives like the reconstruction of secret bases uh, and something called Operation Goldfish, in which Ukrainians were taught about how to create fake personas and operate undercover. And there were tensions in this relationship. So tensions arose around um, lethal operations, which made the US government very nervous because obviously they were concerned about Russia's reaction to that. But as this partnership has persisted, you know, it's contributed significantly to um, the defense of Ukraine. And um, yeah, and and this relationship is still continues to this day. And the, the William Burns flew out just recently to kind of reassure the Ukrainians that the CIA are still committed to this relationship, despite, um, you know, US politicians like Donald Trump, who are sort of sending out signals that uh, they their support for Ukraine uh, may stop if, if Trump gets elected. And certainly it's been halted at the moment by Republicans. So, yeah. So, Matt, any any thoughts on, on all of that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see, like, the sort of irony in that Russian efforts from 2014, even, I guess, before 2014, but from 2014 onwards to kind of subvert, co-opt, or subjugate the Ukrainians, which is born mm. of this belief that they're, you know, working hand in glove with CIA and MI6, oh, yeah. are sort of the very efforts that push them deeper into the West's arms. Mm. You know, self fulfilling prophecy in a way. <laughs> in a way, yes. Yeah. But it's also it's 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 impressive what they've been able to do. I mean, I think there was sort of an assumption heading into from you know many people in the West that like heading into the invasion in 2022 that like. The Ukrainian intelligence services were so penetrated by the Russians to the degree that they were just going to be like neutralized, you know, and that was absolutely mm. not true. Like the G the the uh, GUR, their military intelligence has been um, really formidable, and I mean, proven themselves, I think, to be one of the most effective intelligence agencies on Earth right yeah. now. Um, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, it's definitely. a really great uh, yeah. partnership um, to see. Mm. No, it is. It is. I mean, like, uh, I, again, like the timing of this article intrigues me because um, I, I'm assuming apart from the second anniversary, it's to rem remind readers in America how fruitful the relationship between the CIA and Ukraine has been. Um, and I think it's assume I'm assuming it's hope that this article will drive renewed support for Ukraine. And I hope it does, um, though, obviously, sadly, many Republicans have been blocking support for Ukraine or have questioned the support for Ukraine. And um I, I worry that they'll probably need more than this article to persuade them. Now, one of the things that came out I was quite interested by was this sort of CIA training that's been going on. Apparently, they've been helping to train a new generation of Ukrainian spies to operate not only inside Russia, but across Europe and in Cuba. Um, and I was intrigued by that. And I'm wondering, you know, um, 
you know, there's been this ongoing discussion for the last couple of years about the sabotage operations in, in Russia and the CIA connection to it. I do wonder maybe whether these Ukrainian sort of special forces and spies were trained by the CIA and now are the ones acting potentially behind the borders. Yeah. Um, but with without CIA sort of sanctioned backing because they would need presidential approval to be directly involved in that, wouldn't they? And I don't see Biden as um, a president who would sanction that in, in uh, Russia. I could be well, wrong, but I see him more cautious. But So there was, um, this isn't the first time this kind of relationship has been reported, right? Mm. So it mm. was over a year ago, I want to say, Jack Murphy, who listeners of the podcast, I'm sure some of you are familiar with his work, um, Jack Murphy had a big article that he was working with. He he was working with a major U.S. publication to to run this article that he had done with, you know, sourcing from inside JSOC and the CIA and stuff that was um, talking about uh, the um, sabotage efforts inside Russia. Yeah. You know, like all the fires and explosions mm. and stuff at all their yeah. uh, industrial facilities and yeah. And really pointed out how it's, um, I think there were a few uh, European services involved as well. Uh, they weren't named. Um, you could probably guess who the likely, I don't know, probably mm. Poland, the Baltics and stuff. Again, I'm not saying that's who they are. I would imagine Estonia. Estonia, yeah, yeah. are involved in it um, as well. But using a lot of just really old fashioned, like like OSS, SOE, kind mm. of like World War Two ish tactics, you know, like uh, uh, arms caches that were buried. Um, some of these cells that dated back to like old stay behind units during the Cold War that would have, you know, uh, uh, wreaked havoc behind the Soviet lines, you know, in a conflict with the Warsaw Pact, mm. that that kind mm. of old stuff that was that was taken off the shelf and being used here. Um, yeah, Jack, Jack had that story. Uh, yeah. A while ago. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was December twenty twenty two. Two. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember it was around Christmas yeah. time because we had a few Twitter exchanges about yeah. it. Yeah, Jack. Jack had the story a while ago, and um, I think the it was it was sort of the seventh floor intervened with whatever publication he was he was working with, and uh, they lost interest and then he published it on his own yeah yeah exactly no it's an interesting one well i think just to, this is this is a great ask where it goes it's very detailed um i've got a whole load of notes here but i i think i'm gonna hold fire on any more notes but um but what i would say is have a read of it because i think it goes it goes into the history of since about 2014 when this partnership was created um and i think as you were saying a little bit earlier Matt, about this sort of putin and his self-fulfilling prophecy Putin became sort of obsessed with Ukraine getting closer to the West, and then he pushed them closer to the West by his actions. Um, so, and and Putin's managed to increase NATO as well. Somebody jokingly once said online that Putin's the West's best agent. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a twist? That it turns out that Putin was working with the West, which Ooh. I don't believe, but but um, but that would be an interesting twist on world events. That's wouldn't some it? But, eight-dimensional uh, chess right there. <laughs> oh damn right damn right and i and i i honestly don't believe no. that kind of stuff happens but there are people out there who probably do believe that yeah. but there we go uh maybe the end of um is it the king's man with um 
Rafe Fiennes, whichever one that was, um, the historical set one where at the end he ends up in a, um, we see that like Adolf Hitler, Stalin and whoever else are all working for the Illuminati. Um, and it's just like, oh my goodness, there we go. You know, they're going to rehash that conspiracy theory in a movie. Great. <laughs> so there we go. Anyway, let's move on to our final piece on espresso martini. Now, Matt, you picked this one out. It's all about the uh, another failed ceasefire agreement between Israel and Hamas. Um, so I don't know if you want to tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so this is uh, an article that we actually had to swap out um, sort of yesterday. So I'll, mm. I'll explain. Anyway, it's another New York Times article. It's called Hamas Rejects Ceasefire Proposal Dashing Biden's Hopes of a Near-Term Deal. So some key points here. Uh, Hamas rejected the latest ceasefire proposal, disappointing President Biden's hopes for an imminent deal. He was originally saying that he sort of expected to have one as of this coming Monday, um, which we're recording this on Thursday. So he thought it was imminent. Um, Anyway, uh, so Hamas demanded the release of Palestinian prisoners in exchange for Israeli troops held hostage, indicating no breakthrough in mediated talks with Israel. Qatar expressed caution regarding Biden's optimistic view on nearing an agreement, stating ongoing effects but no concrete developments. Israel offered concessions, including releasing Palestinian prisoners in negotiations, aiming for a six-week ceasefire uh, in exchange in, in, in exchange involving scores of, of prisoners. Uh, Hamas insisted on a permanent ceasefire and Israeli troop withdrawal, while Israel maintains its goal of toppling Hamas in Gaza, leading to a deadlock. A State Department spokesman claimed significant progress in negotiations, pushing for a deal benefiting the Palestinian people. Meanwhile, uh, the Palestine Red Crescent Society suspended emergency medical missions after Israeli forces intercepted a convoy evacuating patients and detained their workers. Israel defended the interception, citing intelligence suggesting Hamas members were in the convoy, leading to criticism and suspension of missions by humanitarian organizations. Humanitarian relief efforts face obstacles in Gaza, as we know, prompting international aid uh, airdrops along the coast. Um, I, France was one of the countries that was dropping aid from the air. Mm, um, yeah. Uh, the World Food Program also suspended food deliveries to northern Gaza due to safety concerns, highlighting the need for alternative delivery methods like airdrops. Chris, what do you think? The first thing that came out in my head was obviously these this proposed prisoner exchange well prisoner for hostages exchange let's put it that way um so israel's propo- proposing to exchange 15 prisoners who were convicted of serious terrorism charges in exchange for five female prisoners the five um i think i believe they're five young idf soldiers who are still in captivity at this time and these people they were going to exchange for them were you know serious hardened terrorists who've done terrible things and killed people and yeah the obviously releasing individuals like that is for the benefit of of hamas not israel and um yet hamas still want more hamas are the ones who've said no to this current ceasefire agreement um and even though if you look at the debates online israel will be blamed and america will be blamed for the ceasefire collapsing but it's Hamas who are the ones who've said no to it. Because uh, remember, the original article we were talking about was about the proposed ceasefire, which seemed quite optimistic. And then you messaged me, I think it was the next day, of, oh, the talks are collapsed. I'm like, I'm yeah. so shocked there. Um, and um, so what I will say, because I just think this whole, you know, this whole war is appalling. Um, the death toll is appalling, and I'd like to see a ceasefire. But the debate in this whole subject um, sort of 
tends to ignores Israel's efforts for the ceasefire and um, seems to also ignore Hamas's efforts to not have a ceasefire and to keep this conflict kind of going. And um, and I and I feel very sorry for these poor hostages, these especially these young women. And there've been reports from hostages who've been released that these women have been raped, um, that they have suffered physical and mental abuse, uh, and and even the male hostages have have suffered rape and physical and mental abuse as well. And I just I don't know. I just find it really sickening because um, you know I'm concerned both for the hostages and these civilians, these high number of casualties that have kind of gone on, um, and this horrible horrible conflict just won't end. And there's no real there's no real good political solution because Biden's trying to do something, but he's just sort of pissing off all the Palestinian Americans and all the supporters of the Palestinians. And it's like, I don't know, I, it, it's the worst. It, it, unfortunately, the Israel-Palestine situation is always the kind of third rail of geopolitics, and it's the worst thing to happen for anybody, um, especially for people killed. Um, but for to find a decent political solution is just a nightmare. And many people have tried, and I, and I honestly have no idea um, what the next ceasefire agreement's going to be, but I guarantee you on Saturday there'll be a protest in London about demanding a ceasefire, yet they will totally ignore the fact that Hamas are the ones who've kind of screwed this particular one up. So Yeah, I think the disagreement here, uh, again, I wouldn't say, I, first, I wouldn't say that the talks collapsed. I think there's just mm. a delay in them, and there's not, like, we don't have a deal yet. Um, but I think Bill Burns and the head of Mossad and the Qataris will, mm. you know, go back to mm. the drawing board. I think the the hang up has been along two lines. Um, so it's what the Israelis will give in exchange for getting their troops that were taken hostage on ten seven back, mm. Mm. right? Um, I don't know specifically this may have been in the article i don't recall um i don't know specifically who hamas wants back in it because like in in the previous ceasefire there were um i think a large number of palestinians that were released per every israeli hostage that was released but some of the people that like they weren't like the people that they were quite low level people it was was, in many cases it was like palestinian like teenagers and stuff who were swept up in raids in the West Bank and everything. Mm. You know, it wasn't like these weren't like senior Hamas members. You know, these were like just people in in many respects. Um, so, you know, obviously, if if Hamas is asking for, you know, more uh, like serious uh, combatants and stuff, that's going to be a debate. I think the other big hang up is whether it's a permanent ceasefire Mm. Which the issue for the Israelis then is a permanent ceasefire now would mean that Hamas remains in power in Gaza, which is unacceptable for them and Israelis across the board um, versus like a temporary ceasefire, which the number that was thrown around previously was six weeks. And I think there was some thinking in the Biden administration that a um, a six weeks after six weeks, it would be politically or militarily untenable for the IDF to ramp up combat operations again. Whether or not that would bear out 
in that scenario, I don't I don't know. But I think that was the, the thinking. And of course, in the conversation about it, it totally just gets lost in the, you know, black and white absolutes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the hope is that a temporary six week ceasefire mm. in practice will become a permanent ceasefire. Mm. But I, I just having Hamas stay in leadership in any way, shape or form in Gaza, I just don't see how that would be acceptable. Yes. Um, we have to face that political reality. What they did on the 7th of October, had they done that in the West, we would not be accepting no, we wouldn't. Them. You know, had they done that in America, we wouldn't accept it. I mean, goddamn, we toppled the Taliban over 9-11. And the Taliban weren't even really directly involved with 9-11. They were just supporting players. Um, so we need to get real about it, really, because um, I think this, is, this has been my bugbear with the international reaction to Hamas for a long time, is that Israel Israel's concerns always get thrown to the side because Israel's always painted as the aggressor and somehow Hamas have been given a kind of free pass for a very long time and then Hamas managed to do what they did on the 7th of October and now we're in this terrible mess um but yet again kind of Israeli security always seems to be for many people they don't give a damn about Israeli security they think Israel should just go and I don't see that as a realistic option and I don't see that as a particularly good option either um especially for the Israelis um and I don't think that's an acceptable opinion either anymore because Israel is a political reality whether you like it or not and but then we need you know we need some sort of proper situation for the Palestinians and Hamas is not that Hamas is a terrible terrorist organization who do terrible things. They treat their population so badly. I mean, you talk about aid earlier. I've seen, I've seen verified videos of Hamas just taking a lot of the aid away for their own people. You know, as somebody pointed out, I think it was, um, it was a former CIA officer pointed out on Twitter that one of the thoughts that crossed her mind was the fact that Hamas obviously knew what they were going to do on the 7th of October, and they prepared to protect their people, their fighters. They put, a, you know, they got supplies ready in their underground bunkers, but there were no provisions for the civilian population at all. There were no air raid shelters, no food stores, no nothing. And obviously they knew exactly by poking the bear, being Israel in this situation, sorry for the analogy, but they poked the bear, and Israel responded. I don't agree. I think Israel over-responded, but they did respond, and it was kind of predictable how Israel was going to respond. And Hamas knew that, and they did absolutely zero to protect the people of Gaza. And I just get so annoyed in the West when you've got people over here who are not under threat from Hamas who make zero effort to talk about that. And it really annoys me, as you can tell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean we've we've talked plenty about how it just sort of exhausting and depressing this whole thing has been, and I think we're going to be dealing mm. with the repercussions of it, even here, you know, politically mm. in the West for a long time. And the way yeah. the way the entire world sees Israel has mm. entirely changed because of this. And I don't know mm. that the Israelis have fully understood that no i i think actually i suspect this has done far more damage to israel than they even want to believe i have a feeling because you've got a whole generation of younger people in the west who will grow up to be the new political players 
And I mean, we already sort of see it on the American left, the new generation, the AOCs, etc., who are not fans of Israel. And certainly uh, about a year and a half ago, there were votes about removing or, or bringing down America's support for military support for like the Iron Dome. And a lot of far leftist and leftist politicians, it's sort of become this sort of cause for them that cutting off any American support for Israel is the thing that needs to happen. So let's fast forward 20 years time. That idea might well be a mainstream idea by that point because of what's happened this year. Yeah, amongst amongst progressives, you know, quote unquote normie Democrats in in the yeah. US. Yeah, it's entirely possible that that's just a, a, a there's been a generational within the American center left, there's been a generational divide as far as Israel is seen for a while. Mm. And I thought even before October 7th that, you know, this was going to come to a head at some point, you know, in a primary or whatever. But this sped this up. Yeah. And um, yeah, to your point, I don't know that Israelis, as are Palestinians, but Israelis are dealing with a profound sense of trauma that if we lost the equivalent of what 11,000 people you know that that would be the equivalent in the US of what they lost on mm. October 7th mm. if mm. i know holy shit oh my god we would lose our yeah. minds like we, we would, would we would burn that whole region to the ground yeah, yeah. um if that happened to us. And yeah, I don't think there there's just a profound sense of trauma that they're still working through. Um, and in that, I don't know that they I don't know that they recognize their image in the world, how that how it how it no, how much of the no. world sees them now. No. And and Israel now have responded and created even more trauma because, I mean, the death toll is not confirmed because, again, we can't trust Hamas's numbers because it's Hamas. Yeah, it's, um, but it's, it's going to be large. It's, uh, you can independently say it's going to be a large I figure. think the number that's been, and I, mm. I mean, this is, yeah, it's reported by the Gazan Ministry of Health, which is, of course, governed by Hamas. Mm -hmm. So that's an asterisk that yeah. you have to put there. But I think 30,000 is the new number that's just been crossed. And I think... Um, there's a lot of other international aid organizations and stuff that have mm. sort of. I, I think it's. I think the number is pretty accurate. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of. I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of fog of war over sure. the cause of all those deaths because I know there's certainly been accusations that Hamas um, sort of bullied people to go in certain places that were known to get bombed and stuff and so on and so forth. But um, but it's going to be a high figure and it's you know way higher than it ever should have yeah. been yeah yeah and i just don't see how that's going to help israel in the long run i really don't but i you know but is but again just to put an, uh, a point on it i still think that the international community needs to take israel's security more seriously um and obviously with the rise of anti-semitism and stuff that's going on right now it's it, i think the you know jewish people and israelis feel um feel targeted right now and um you know especially especially in europe there's been all sorts of things going on and anti-semitism has risen dramatically as has islamophobia islamophobia has risen dramatically not quite as much um percentage wise as anti-semitism but still there's so much hate going on right now and what's even worse so you talk about political repercussions you've got palestinian americans and even some Muslim Americans who are sort of indicating that they're definitely not going to vote for Biden. 
Um, and they're going to potentially allow Trump to return, who's Mr. Muslim ban. Well, yeah, that's he said he'll he'll send the military out to put down any pro-Palestinian protests and deport mm-hmm. any any pro-Palestinian immigrants. So, you know, great job, guys. Um, so that could happen too. To that point, though, so I think it was on Tuesday. Was it Tuesday? Mm. Um, the Democratic primary in Michigan was held, and there was a movement. I I don't know the ins and outs of it, but there was a movement, sort of amongst progressives or 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 Arab American groups, rather than to support Biden in the primary, to just put uncommitted. Um, and there were some even scenarios that, so like Dean Phillips is a is a um. Democratic congressman who's running against mm, Biden mm. in the primary. Not a it's not a serious threat. It's more, you know, showing concerns about Biden's age, you know, his strength in the general, that kind of thing. You know, um, there were some scenarios that, you know, okay, could Dean Phillips pull an upset and end up winning Michigan because of, you know, the lack of support among Arabs Americans mm. in the in the state. Um, I it was only sixteen percent. Of the vote was 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 uncommitted, which it's significant. It's not something to ignore. The campaign has a lot of work to do with progressives, young people, and Arab Americans mm. for sure. Um, but as I understand it, that sixteen percent is in uh, is in sort of alignment with past historical primaries. Um. Yeah, it's not a it's not a flashing red emergency that sixteen no, percent, no. but it's also it's it's not something to be ignored either. That that was a big test to gauge the kind of discontent in the electorate. Yeah. I think there's work that progressives need to do too, because if they keep ignoring the reality of Israeli security requirements, this will keep happening. Sure. Well, I think then also that isn't this a, and I I don't know you've you've seen rumblings of this, like my conversation on here with Laura Rosen about the U.S. potentially calling for the the U.S. potentially recognizing Palestine as a state under the Biden administration mm. or, mm. you know, the uh, efforts for Saudi-Israeli normalization and stuff. It, there seems to be like, if anything good can come from this conflict like let it be like let's grab this issue by the balls and actually solve it once and for all you know mm. settle the issue yeah get a yeah. a reinvigorated serious palestinian authority that governs the west bank and the gaza strip like solve the fucking issue cuz otherwise it's going to keep happening again and again and again as it has been and and it, like the past sort of like like the Abraham Accords, you know, like the mm. recent efforts with Gulf Arab states normalized mm, ties mm, with mm, mm, mm. with the Israelis and stuff. There was sort of this belief that like you could just fence in the Palestinians and just sort of ignore them and make peace throughout the region without settling that. And I think October seventh just proved that that's not that's not possible, mm. you know. So mm, let's do the mm. hard work. Let's do the tough, yeah. the, the the tough stuff and solve the problem so that this doesn't happen again. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Because otherwise, it's just gonna—it is gonna happen again unless that's done. And yeah, so I, and I, this is where I feel the international community has been failing for a very long time, um, and the UN has not come out particularly well out of this situation, especially with the whole Yunara thing, um, where that hasn't really been—not police is not the word, but 
um, not vetted properly, and it's led to some very uh, dodgy kind of connections there. So, and and I, and I think we said this in the previous episode. I think I think the UN is very important, and we need a UN because um, people love to criticize the UN. The UN has the unfortunate job of trying to bring the international, you know, all the countries together and sort of come up with some sort of agreement and good luck. <laughs> it's like herding cats. But I always think we need a UN and I, and I hate it when, um, you know, the UN does get sort of tarnished with things, but this was avoidable, but it hasn't been because the UN do typically allow countries and, uh, and with zero pushback to ignore Israeli security concerns. And Israel's been asked to tolerate, you know, constant rocket attacks, all sorts of stuff. And people over here describe it as like a fireworks. You know, I'm like, no, these are proper rockets and things. And that cannot be allowed to continue because otherwise this will happen again. So um, anyway, but <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure how we can um, fix things. But uh, what we will do is we're going to move on to extra shots. One and star, we're going to be taking. One yeah, star. and we're going to be taking one star we're going to be and we're going to be taking a look at the shake-up uh potential recommendations for a shake-up of british intelligence the arrest of an alleged member of the red army faction in germany and the conviction of a left-wing terrorist in the uk and a cyber attack against an iranian spy ship so uh join us on extra shot um you could there'll be a link in the show notes below and uh and we'll catch you on there and if not thank you very much for listening and um yeah uh, and i hope you enjoyed this episode and we will catch you on the next one bye everybody thanks for listening this is secrets and spies 